Hello, thrill seekers, twister turners, puzzlers, and solvers. Welcome back to Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of your hosting team here week in and week out with Grant Faulkner. Grant, are you ready to dig into a thrilling episode with me today? I look forward to being reeled in slowly to an increasingly dangerous space and becoming confused and anxious as I try to figure (laughs) out what the hell is going on. So yeah. All right, good. Thank you so much for always being game. Uh, So psychological thrillers, that is what we're discussing today. So first, let's unpack what defines them. There's conflict at the heart of the plot, and that's most often centered around a murder or multiple murders, although it could be something like a disappearance or a robbery. It's always something suspicious a crime. From there, the plot drives us forward towards solving whatever this actor crime might be. And then good thrillers unfold slowly, as you said, lead you down different possible paths so that you're a little off center. Hopefully you're thrilled, kept on edge, a little scared, or at least unsettled. And then at the heart of good thrillers is fear, paranoia, or a thirst for vengeance. So honestly, what's not to love? Do you love thrillers? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because as you were describing them, I wondered who doesn't love a thriller. And in the rankings of types of stories, you know, I think love stories and thrillers must be the most universally loved. And in fact, I think I think there are probably elements of thrillers and love stories in in all genres to a degree. You know, the way you described a thriller as unfolding slowly and leading you down different plot paths and being a little off center. Um, most stories actually strive for those elements, just perhaps in different ways. So to answer your question, what's not to love? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I realized too, when I looked up this description, just how much I do love thrillers, but also that I don't tend to seek them out. Instead, I fall upon them by accident. And luckily, lately, I've noticed there have been a lot of thrillers sort of like this one that actually maybe cross over into commercial fiction. So they're, they are th- psychological thrillers and people are talking about them as psychological thrillers, but they're not really in that like ostracized genre world that can so often lead to things not getting sort of front and center in terms of the media world. So I was noticing, you know, looking back, actually thinking about authors that we've interviewed who fall into this realm of sort of commercial psychological thriller, When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean. This is, you know, guests on our show. The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delila Harris. And there have been others. But I do love plots that have an edge of darkness to them and sometimes more than an edge. <laughs> and in the debut novel by Ana Reyes, which we are uh, looking at today, The House in the Pines, uh, I was reminded why I love these kinds of books. And it's because of the psychology. Uh, and I thought that we might get into that a little bit more deeply today in terms of our theme, because beyond psychological thrillers, understanding human psychology is really central to good story, as people surely know. Uh, And as such, it's central to fiction and memoir, which we tend to focus on. And human psychology is all about motivations and drives and the circumstances that make someone the way they are, the traumas of their pasts. And so, Grant, I'm wondering what your thoughts are here about how important it is for writers to have a strong understanding of human psychology uh, generally, even if it's intuitive. And can you think of any novels, I'm sure you can, (laughs) that are specifically psychologically complex? 
Yeah, you know, I think the field of psychology was essentially spawned by literature, meaning that psychology as we know it today really just got started a hundred or so years ago. So I think literature was the primary way we understood the human mind and personality types and the ego and our own insecurities and anxieties. And I think of, of works like Hamlet or characters like Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment. They're essentially psychological case studies. And in fact, that's what made Shakespeare so great. He was able to capture the psychology of such a span of characters, you know, from Falstaff to Othello to Iago to Lady Macbeth. And and few writers have that range. It's something to aspire to. And Raskolnikov is such a compelling character because of all of his contradictions. You know, he's just a just so full of angst and turmoil and he's got such an inflated sense of himself and and then there are the ways he doesn't know himself and the ways that you know both guilt and love change him it's just uh yeah one big crime and punishment it's just like one big uh psychological case study um but beyond that since you asked for novels that are particularly psychologically complex i'll mention a favorite of mine under the volcano which details a character's self-destructive reaction to being rejected by love, although that's a very simplistic definition because it's also about addiction and the character's madness and his inability to express himself and find healing. And then there's you know some famous ones like The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, of course, which is about a character's psychological breakdown. Anything by Virginia Woolf, but particularly Mrs. Dalloway's. And, and then I think of Michael Cunningham's version of Mrs. Dalloway, The Hours, which was also made into a movie, and, and both of which are about different layers of mental illness. And then, you know, since we're talking psychological thrillers, how about Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn? So there's a ton of them out there, of course. And I think good novels always lead us into compelling psychological states and allow us to live in a character's mind, but they're not likely to be spawned by a psychological textbook per se. So I just, I think I, when you mentioned that authors, you know, need to have at least an intuitive sense of psychology, I think that intuition is enough. Don't feel like you have to go, you know, read a bunch of psychology textbooks to be a writer. That's a good piece of advice. Yeah, I, I think people do follow their intuition. And you know, I was thinking as you were listing the fiction, of course, about memoir, and that it's similar and different since the psychology that the author has to unpack in memoir is their own. Uh, and so writers of memoir also need to understand what drives themselves and the other people in their lives. And so that can sometimes be difficult because what I've noticed over the many, many years of teaching memoir is that not every memoirist is super self-aware. And, you know, for instance, one thing I will see sometimes is like that people have like a mythology, you know, something that they've constructed about themselves and their worlds that maybe they need to hold up, uh, you know, even if that's unconscious or subconscious. And so I'll see these kinds of mistakes with new memoirists where someone is fawning, for instance, over a partner or a mentor or a parent. Um, and it's like they're not writing it for the reader, but rather seeming to write it for that person's approval. And that can be pretty transparent. And um, also there can be a tendency to do the opposite, right? Which is like, if you're writing someone who's an antagonist or a villain in memoir, the reality is that person has probably harmed you in real life. And so that leads to why memoirists oftentimes, I think, always should be in therapy while they're writing their memoirs. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also just seen a number of early drafts around those lines, you know, that feel like vengeance drafts, uh, where writers are writing their characters almost more like caricatures rather than human beings. And of course, all this boils down to psychology, because as a memoir 
uh, writer, as I said, it's like there's your own psychology and then there's the psychology of others. But of course, they're people you actually know uh, and sometimes quite intimately. So it can be hard not to project and to write dispassionately. So before I let you move on to another topic, Grant, I do want to say just two examples of books that I think are written dispassionately, one old one and one new one. Uh, the Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls is the old one and What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. I just wanted to say to listeners that in both cases, these are authors who've written about their very problematic parents, you know, that they are like shockingly incompetent in terms of the ways that they put their kids into danger and the harm they inflict. But neither of them demonize their parents, right? Instead, they leave the reader to make their own conclusions about those characters. And they also seem to be able to disconnect themselves from the judgment about what happened. And so instead, they're just showing their readers, this is what happened. And then they're skillfully giving context. And then the reader gets to decide what they feel about the parents. And so that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but I, you know, I do think it's often done in revision. But, you know, just a couple examples of books that um, people might want to read to check out for what do I mean by dispassion. But Grant, going back to the psychological thriller, since that's what we're talking about today, um, I thought it'd be fun to delve into why people love them in the first place. And it turns out, uh, as we discovered, that it's a subject that quite a lot of people have written about and thought about. I read some of those articles and thought about it. And I like them because psychological thrillers explore, you know, their characters' innermost thoughts and motivations. So we really get inside their head and often in deep and dark and very contradictory ways, which, you know, often situates us in the, you know, in the extremes of ethics and morality. I think that's part of the thrill for me. Um, and also, as you get deeper into the character, there are all these surprising and sometimes uh, alarming things about them, you know, and I think about uh, Breaking Bad. As a viewer of that series, you ended up finding yourself rooting for a killer. And you had to reckon with that as a, as a, as a viewer, you know, like, what are you rooting for and why? And the author, uh, Jean Hampf Korolitz, who we had on Right Minded a while back, she said that the reason that psychological thrillers are so engaging is the ongoing tension between what the audience knows or think that they know, and what the characters know, or what they don't know. And she said, and while we're busy yelling at them, in our heads at least, not to make such stupid decisions, we're also telling ourselves that we would never fall for such a suspicious character, obvious ruse. So we're safe, but we, we get to live in a dangerous realm, in other words. Jean also said that the most essential component of any psychological thriller is the climax and the ensuing denouement. And all of the characters' choices and reactions have to catalyze a cathartic conclusion as the pent-up tension is released and the mysteries are finally revealed, you know, usually with a twist or two. So that's a lot to live up to as an author, I have to say. I'm a little bit intimidated to do that or attempt that. So, Brooke, did the, the house in the pines end in such a manner? Yeah. You know, it, in one way, I guess it's interesting that you say that about what she said, because I was like, you know, I, I, I hate to say it was a little bit predictable, but I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, it, it certainly didn't bother me. You know, um, Anna used some really good fictional devices, like using a lot of dialogue to convey her antagonist's motivations. Uh, and since her protagonist is an unreliable narrator for reasons to do with distrusting herself, but also to do with sometimes not being present to the story, uh, which is an interesting reason that 
readers will have to experience for themselves. I do think Anna did a superb job of bringing the novel to a close. And, and you're right, it is a lot to live up to. You know, she has to tie up loose ends, leave the reader in a satisfied place. Um, and another of those articles that we read suggested that we love psychological thrillers because as readers, we want to um, or like to predict outcomes. And so I think that's right. And then once you're correct, you're like, yes. And if you're wrong, you're satisfied too, I guess, because then it's like this surprising twist. Um, and there's also high stakes for authors of these kinds of narratives to keep the pace at a fast clip, mainly just because uh, that's an expectation of the genre. And I did read this book very, very fast, in part because I was eager to figure it out, um, which of course is a psychological motivation for reading in the first place. Well, I know it's going to be a thrill to talk with Anna, so I look forward to talking with her after this short but uh, psychologically thrilling break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so thrilled to have Ana Reyes on the show today. She has an MFA from Louisiana State University. Her work has appeared in Bodega, Père Noir, The New Delta Review, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles, where she teaches creative writing to older adults at Santa Monica College. The House in the Pines is her first novel, which happens to be a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And Ana, uh, I also saw that your book recently hit the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations and Welcome. Thank you so much. It's totally surreal, but yes, I'm very excited about it. I bet. I bet. Uh, and the book is awesome. So I am excited for all of our listeners who haven't yet to check it out and read it because it's exciting. It's a psychological thriller. And The House in the Pines, the actual cabin that is at the center of this book was inspired by a cabin that you've been thinking about for a long time, I read, and you said that it's haunted your pages. And I was wondering if you could share more about that story and what associations do you have with this cabin? And was the novel an exercise in uncovering its meaning? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the first time I wrote about this cabin was um, at the age of 11. And it was the first story I ever wrote. And it was for a, um, a children's writing contest at the public library in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So um, I wrote this story. I didn't know how to write a story, um, but I'd been reading a lot of Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein. Um, so I, I was a huge reader. So I just was like, okay, I'll just do what they do. <laughs> so I sat down and started writing. And it was about this girl lost in the woods and she stumbles upon this cabin. I won't give talk about any more of that story because it would give away the twist. Um, but essentially that same cabin appeared again when I sat down to write this book. Um, it was my MFA thesis for the for grad school at LSU. And um, I, again, was not really sure how to write a book. I really wanted to write a book, but um, in the very beginning, I wasn't sure exactly what it was about. And the, the cabin appeared again. So a lot of the book was sort of built around that. And, and yeah, as you said, as you mentioned, it sort of is an exploration of that place, not just as an actual place, but also as a symbol. 
It's, it sounds like you shaped it and found the story in the writing of it, perhaps. Yeah. But, but I'm curious, since it was, you know, originally your MFA thesis, you know, did you did you shape it to be a psychological thriller from the start? Or was that something it became as you wrote more iterations of it and did more revisions? It was not a thriller at the start. It was um, it was sort of a magical realism um drama, I guess you could say. Um, it had more magical elements than the draft that we have now. Um, the draft that we have now is much more grounded in reality, but um, it was, yeah, it was not a thriller. And I finished writing it. I graduated. I took a year off from writing while I you know, found a job and moved back to LA and just kind of got my life together. And I found an agent who was very generous with her time. And she read the book and she was like, you know, I think it's a great start, but I think it could be more more of a thriller. You know, you have creepy elements, there's some eerie things and scary moments, but it's not really a thriller. So she actually helped me um, as I rewrote it and reconfigured it and, and really learned how to write a thriller. I was a huge thriller reader, but for some reason I had this sense that to write a thriller, you kind of had to, I don't know, have some kind of training in thriller writing. Um, it didn't really make sense, but once I actually sat down and started writing it, I was like, oh, there's a very clear set of rules that go into writing a thriller. And, you know, if you read enough of them and you take notes and you read them in a sort of analytical mindset, you can learn to write a thriller. You can learn those tools, you know, pretty, it's a pretty straightforward process. It's really interesting because it's not the first time I've heard uh, of an agent sort of shaping something to be more of a thriller. And I'm I'm guessing that's for sales reasons, you know, that maybe they're easier to sell or that people really love them. Do you have a sense of that? I think that is probably true. I think it's probably an easier sell, um, just like selling the book to an editor in the first place. But I also think that there's something true about with a thriller, you have a question and that's going to keep people turning pages. So I think that... Um, it, it both makes it more commercial, but it also just makes for a for a more engaging reading experience for the reader. And for the writer, it forces you to focus. It, it for, forces you to sort of think about um, what what's the effect that I'm going for here when I write. And I think that that actually made for a much stronger and more um, focused book. That's interesting too. Yeah. And, and for reasons that I don't want to disclose to our listeners, your protagonist, Maya, is not often completely present to the narrative, mm -hmm. even though she's your only narrator. And, you know, she doubts her truth at times and she's on medication and she's going through a lot that can cloud her judgment in various moments. And I'm really interested to know more about the considerations for writing an unreliable narrator in that way. And, and kind of in the vein of Grant's question, like, was that from the get go or was that a necessary device for writing a thriller? It was there from the get-go that she was going through clonopin withdrawal, and that's because I was going through clonopin withdrawal when mm -hmm. I sat down to write the book. Um, this was, you know, just something that I didn't mean to for it to happen, but I found myself in the situation where I was cut off from the doctor who'd been prescribing it to me um, because of a move out of state, and I was just, in a lot of ways, writing um, sort of through that experience, and a lot of it ended up on the page. And a lot of it's heightened, of course, for dramatic purposes, but a lot of what she goes through um, is what I went through. And as, it, as I started um, telling the story and thinking about her as a character, I realized that it was actually a great quality for an unreliable narrator to go through. Because when you can't sleep and when you're going through these um, sort of neurological, you know, it's, it's just really an intense experience to go through clonopin withdrawal. And it does make you unreliable. Um, it makes you disoriented and it makes you question yourself, especially when you haven't slept for a long time. It's really easy to start thinking, 
you know, maybe this isn't Claudia withdrawal. Maybe it's me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Um, so I felt unreliable at that time. And I think that that turned out to be perfect for my character. I'm so interested. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit preoccupied, um, Anna, with the with the whole um, journey that your novel took to find itself as a thriller, mm-hmm. and um, especially the, the the agent role in that as well. Because I'm thinking of that. The advice that I've always received when querying agents is to you know to to label your genre and, and to be like, yeah. I'm writing a thriller. I'm writing a romance. I'm, you know, and so I'm I'm just curious, especially since you came from an MFA program. Maybe I'm making the wrong assumption that it was literary fiction. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious how you found the agent and then did that presumption of genre change? And I guess it did. But then how, you, you started to touch on what you learned about, you know, you learned to write a thriller in the process of, of writing it, which I'm also interested in as well, because uh, authors generally kind of become the genre that they write in. Yeah. So this is a very long winded rambling question. <laughs> so the first part of that question, I think, was how did I find the agent? And I went uh, sort of the traditional route that I had read about online. Um, and been advised by other writers, which is just send out query letters. So I didn't, I didn't know any agents, but I just kind of researched people who were writing books that I thought were really good and that were kind of in the vein of what I was trying to do. And, um, and I just queried people and I was very lucky to land with a person that I did because um, she never really said like, this needs to have a genre, but I think that sort of nudging me in the thriller direction or really just questioning, like, what if you turn this into a thriller and then, sort of encouraging me along the way and being like, you can write a thriller, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just read these, you know, she, she actually gave me reading uh, recommendations, different stories and different novels that she thought were really good examples of the form and that had those tools that I was trying to develop. Um, so I think there are probably a lot of agents who, you know, are looking to make the sale rather quickly. And for that reason, they're like, I want to know what this is, you know, from the very beginning. I want to, I want to be able to label the genre. But I, I think there's other people like the agent that I found who generally just want to help you tell a better story and the story that you want to tell. And that also tends to coincide with, with moving it into something more recognizable um, genre-wise. Well, Anna, before you came on, Grant and I were talking about how important it is that authors have a good grasp on psychology to be able to write character motivations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Maya's high school best friend in the book, Aubrey, wanted to be a psychologist or study psychology. And then Frank, your antagonist, um, his father studied the human mind. And there's just a lot about the mind in this book, including mental illness. So tell us about your personal interest in the human mind. I've always just thought it was fascinating. Um, I think that if I were to go back to school and say something different, it might be psychology because I just think it's so interesting. Um, And it does happen to sort of overlap a lot with um, narrative and writing. I think that when you have a story that has characters that seem real and are kind of um, recognizable in their psychology, people tend to relate to them more and therefore care about what happens to them. So then you have a story that people are engaged with on an emotional level, not just sort of a, a thinking level. So I think psychology is sort of present in any story that that involves, you know, a novel especially that involves people. And for me, I was just extremely interested in in the particular aspects of psychology that Frank's father studies. Well, Anna, uh, in addition to being a psychological thriller, you, you mentioned that that the book started with with elements and maybe even more elements of magical realism. And, you know, Maya's favorite book we noticed is Like Water for Chocolate. So I'm curious, how, how difficult was it to execute the magical realism parts of the book? How did you balance it with the, with the addition of the thriller elements? 
the the magical realism elements were actually there first. So it, it, the um, evolution of this book actually involved paring away some of that magical realism. So one thing that I think surprises a lot of people when I tell them is that um, Frank, in the original draft, the one that I wrote as my thesis, he did have some kind of magical power. It was subtle. It was, again, magical realism. So it was sort of that blending of the magical with um, grounded reality. But it was much, he was much more magical. And as I sort of sharpened him as a villain and made him more um, nefarious, gradually it became something that I, I, I found it would be scarier if he was a person who could actually, if, if he was some, doing something that a person could actually do. It's not likely, but you know, what he does is something that theoretically really could happen. So the magical elements were kind of stripped away little by little as I um, brought this book into focus. And to good effect, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it, that's, I think, also what makes it kind of scary, right, is that possibility that maybe this could happen. Um, and I wanted to note your name, Ana Reyes, uh, and you're, you center this kind of ambiguously ethnic character with a white mom and a Guatemalan dad who grew up in a super white town in Massachusetts. I couldn't actually find online whether you are half Guatemalan, but I wanted to ask you about it and, you know, what's special to you about the Guatemalan heritage, tradition, and folklore that are central and peripheral to Maya's experiences. Yeah. Um, so I am half Guatemalan, just like her. My mom is um, American or my mom's white and my dad is from Guatemala. He's still alive, unlike the dad in my book, um, thankfully. But he came here when he was 11 years old. So I think I've always, um, like my character, I grew up hearing stories about Guatemala more so than my character because I would hear them from my dad and from my grandparents. And they talked about this country, their homeland in these glowing terms, but also sad things that happened there as a result of the Civil War and the reason that they left. So I had all these ideas about Guatemala growing up, but it wasn't until I was 17 and I went there for the first time that I actually met the people, my side of the family that lives there. So there was a lot of sort of like expectation and imagination versus reality that I experienced. And so that was something that it was very natural for me to write about with Maya. She kind of goes through a similar journey um, of self-discovery in her teen years. So, um, so yeah, tell, writing about Guatemala felt very natural and felt like a part of her that um, I really understood and related to. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's an awesome book. We're really happy for you for your success and wish you the very best as you continue to tour and get this book out into the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, Grant, a few weeks ago, our trend was about the demise of print reviews and the shuttering of Book Forum. And this week, we're talking about the USA Today bestseller list going on a hiatus. So I'm not sure if that's a fi- uh, forever hiatus or if it's just a little bit of 
time for it to figure out what it needs to do or wants to do next. But either way, this was upsetting news to a lot of authors and publishers at the end of last year. Yeah, it's hard to see all these longstanding traditions come to an end because we come to rely on them. You know, with things like review outlets and bestseller lists, it's easy to to take for granted that they're going to be here forever. I know I have taken them (laughs) for granted in that way until they're not. And this is another story that has to do with layoffs. Uh, USA Today's parent company, Gannett, laid off 3% of its workforce in August. And then this announcement to lay off Mary Caden, who'd been compiling the best seller list since 2007 came at the end of the year. So Brick, how important was the USA Today bestseller list to authors and publishers? I mean, bestseller lists matter a lot for bragging rights. And then you also have to sell a lot of books to get on those lists. So it's helpful for readers too, because they can look to those lists and see what people are reading and what's rising to the top. And we've had a handful of USA Today bestseller lists, uh, notably on our Spark Press imprint. Um, We have had, uh, he gets that from me. One of our authors was on the USA Today bestseller list twice, and it certainly helped to move books. So I think that we will miss it. And that, that's why, you know, that publishers will miss it because it's like a, a measure and it draws more readers. Uh, but for us, it's not, you know, being gone is certainly not going to devastate it, us in any way. I think the um, biggest loss is just from seeing the traditional ways of tracking books and reviewing books falling to the wayside. But then, you know, something will come up to replace it. No doubt. We've said that before. Um, and we know from, you know, covering this stuff before Grant that what's replacing it is influencers, which is different. You know, it's new media. And I'm not sure I want to weigh in on the pros and cons completely only because, you know, it's hard to say until the ramifications are felt and that comes in the months to come. Um, But I think what is the constant study here is, you know, just how much our industry is always in flux. Definitely always in flux. And and maybe, you know, we need to be mindful about how much we rely on something being there for us. I remember, for instance, in the past conversation with you that you talked about what a shock it was, Brooke, when, when Huffington Post stopped allowing guest bloggers to post. And it's like one day you're in, one day you're out. And this and other trends feel a bit like that. And they're coming and going so fast these days. So it can be a little arresting, especially when it starts to feel like a lot of things are shuddering all at once, which is it's how it feels right now in a way. Totally. And, you know, as authors, I think we just need to take it in stride and keep our eye out for the next thing because there always is a next thing, but it can feel a little graspy you know, when you don't know what that next thing is. Uh, but Grant, you know, right minded for now is a consistent. We're here for you week in and week out. We are not shuddering. We are not going on hiatus. And we appreciate being one of your trusted weekly shows. And we appreciate you telling friends about us too, spreading the word that we're out here and doing these writerly shows. So thank you. And until next week.